What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Break out or break down. We debate which way stocks are likely to go as one top strategist bumps his S&P target. Another says not so fast. Joining us for the hour right here, post nine today, Joe Terranova, Liz Young and Steve Weiss. Let's check the markets. We are slightly negative, at least on the Dow. S&P is a smidge positive, And there's the Nasdaq down by a fraction as well. Liz, CPI, PPI. We got more earnings like Disney debt ceiling meeting. Janet Yellen's on later today. She's already said if they don't raise the debt ceiling quote, we'll have an economic and financial catastrophe. Austin Goolsby today is getting vibes. Those are his words that a credit <laughs> squeeze is beginning. Uh, and yet, I don't know, we're kind of hanging in. What do yep. you think? Yep. Well, I think there's a lot of vibes out there that haven't proven to be anything in the data yet, but it's a huge week, a huge week for inflation. Remember, CPI is what the consumer pays. PPI is what businesses are paying. So we're going to get a read on both. If we see CPI stay flat this month, I think that's probably not a great sign. PPI may come in a little bit weaker, but that's, to me, an indication that businesses are assuming activity is going to be slower going forward. So again, not a great sign. I've waited for a while for weeks like this to come about and to actually move the market in one way or another. I don't know that we're going to get a week like that yet. I think that, yes, we have some earnings still left over. I don't know that they're going to be that influential on in the direction of the market. We've gotten the bulk of earnings season, and largely the narrative has been not as bad as we expected, so we're still afloat. We've stayed buoyed by that. But I do expect that this credit crunch and the contraction and availability of funds is going to really start eating into small and mid-sized businesses, and we're going to hear about that soon enough. All right, so Joe, we got the debt ceiling issue. We got a central banker talking about a credit squeeze mm-hmm. beginning, and the VIX is at 17. And I'm wondering what you think of after last week, which was a big week as we head in now with sort of everything on the table. Market's too complacent or not. Where do you think we're going? I think the market is incredibly resilient. I told you last week I thought there was a change in trend when we failed up at 41.86. Next thing we know, we're trading at 40.48. Last Wednesday, here we are back to 41.50. That's a very resilient market. Now, a lot of that was Apple's earnings acting as a catalyst, mega caps continuing to be strong in the marketplace, but you can't dismiss the premise of the resiliency. But overall, we are clearly in a consolidation range. We're waiting for a lot of information, uh, which which Liz has you know, pointed out. I think when you look at inflation this week, you have to understand it's going to be distorted because the price of gasoline was up 3% in April on the back of the OPEC supply announcements, and that's been reversed here in the month of May. So I agree with you. I'm not necessarily sure you get an indication on overall where the market's going to go. I still think what you're trying to do here is you're trying to mine for opportunities going bottoms up within the market and see if you could capture some alpha in that regard. You've already sort of looked for your opportunities in the rebalance of the 
Joe T in terms of adding you know, more growth, and mega cap tech, et cetera, reducing some cyclical exposure. All right, Weiss, Barry Bannister, Stiefel, I referenced one strategist at the top here, raises the target. He goes to 4,400 from 4,200. He talks about the resiliency in, in you know, not necessarily the market per se, but in the economy. Uh, we also forecast inflation, he says, to slow sharply. Mike Wilson sort of counters that. Many of the leading macro data points have fallen more recently and are not pointing to a similar run rate in terms of EPS strength looking forward through year end. So Bannister grows more optimistic. Wilson stays uh, you know, cautious as he's been. Mm-hmm. What about you? We've been undeniably resilient, I think, right? From, from not only an economic standpoint, but I think even you would, you would admit, I mean, the market's kind of hung in in the face of a lot. The market wants to go higher. To me, this is, uh, I'm sure one of Liz's favorite shows when she was growing up was Hogan's Heroes. They had a character, Sergeant Sergeant Schultz. So this is a Sergeant Schultz market. I see nothing. I hear nothing. Let's just be happy and go along. And that's what's going on. So the market has this resiliency, not across the market. You take a look at Boeing, for example, trading below 200. Again, it got up 225 or so. So it's really pick your spot. Friday I found bizarre because you had inflation picking up in terms of wage inflation. And that's two days after Powell said, hey, I'm not just looking at wage inflation, but that moved up. You had the bond market yields really rocketed up, yet Apple controlled. So you're sort of picking what you want to look at and what people are looking at are tech earnings to justify the market. Could that be the right thing? Could be. Now, the way I'm dealing with it is normally in this kind of environment, I'd be short some things. But this is not a market where you can be short because you get your face ripped off. So I choose to have lower exposure. Austin Goolsby, I agree with him. And I think the issue with commercial banks, the regional banks in particular, that they haven't seen this massive walkway like we saw with Blackstone and others is because leases just haven't come due yet for renewal. So you're not going to walk away from a lease right now because you're going to get sued and guess what? You're going to have to pay. So as you see that go through the system, as you see credit tightening, and he's right, it is tightening, that's going to impact and impact the small businesses, which is why we're seeing the Russell not do as well as top-line tech. Well, credit, credit tightening, you know, a little bit in and of itself is not reason for, you know, the that's doomsday true. scenario. So let's also... Well, I, I don't have a doomsday scenario, so I, I think that the market... Look, I, I don't know if the market goes blows through the bottom of the 3,200 or so. That had been my target a year ago. Maybe it goes to 3,400. But stocks, individual stocks, that's where you have to be careful. So here's what I want to know. Is that at some point, Liz, do we need to settle the argument between the bond market and the Fed? And that's kind of the crux of the Marco Kalanovic note, right? We, he usually drops one of these right here. Uh, by about the time we come on the air or shortly thereafter, in which he says, quote, dissonance remains between the bond market that expects rate cuts this year, equity market interpretation of those potential cuts as positive for risk, and the Fed's rhetoric not seeing any rate cuts. What equity markets refuse to acknowledge is that if rate cuts happen this year, it will either be because of the onset of a recession or a significant crisis in financial markets. Equity market breadth by some measures is the weakest ever with the narrowest stock leadership in an up market since the 90s. So how do you want to deal with that, Liz? This idea of bond market says one thing, Fed, Fed says another. Clarita told me the other day on Closing Bell, the Fed's right. The market doesn't want to believe it. 
I think the Fed wants to be right. I think they would prefer that they can hold rates high, wait for inflation to come down, and then when they decide to cut at some point in 2024, that it's because they're just trying to get back to neutral. The likelihood of that being the scenario that actually plays out, in my opinion, is low. I think that we've already seen a few things break. If we see credit dry up and we see that contraction in funds available continue throughout the year and we continue to see pressure on earnings and inflation stay higher than we expected, something else is probably going to break and the Fed probably has to retrace its steps earlier. If they signaled that they were open to cutting this year, it would basically signal that they were expecting some sort of a contraction or a recession this year, because by their own estimation, inflation won't be back down near target by the end of the year, which means that they have to keep it high. I don't think that we're going to see three cuts by the end of the year unless something very catastrophic happens, but I wouldn't be surprised to see one by the end of the year because there's been some stress in markets and there's been a little bit of lax in the labor market, which I think is the real key to that story. What about this idea, Weiss, that Kalanovic puts forth? By the way, I mean, this is to me one of the most sort of telling things that's happened over the last year is a guy like Marco Kalanovic, who was more positive than most, and then changed his view and sounds week in and week out as one of the more negative people towards risk, towards equities, as, as you'll find. What, what do you make of these comments that he has today about the dissonance between the bond market uh, and the equity market interpretation of what the Fed is saying? Look, if the Fed wants to be right, the Fed's going to be right. They hold all the cards, right? Markets work at the, at the courtesy of the Fed. So if the Fed continues to see inflation being stubbornly high and even ticking up in some instances, the Fed's going to win. So the old adage is as true now as it was then. You can't fight the Fed. So no, but, but the, but, but the right. people who've been right. saying don't fight the Fed, you're almost at 4,200. I mean, you, you know no, what I'm I, saying? I agree. So I hear you. It makes yeah. perfect sense. So, Except uh, the stock market doesn't want to listen to that. They don't, and they haven't been. So, uh, again, a lot of stocks have been listening to it, but the most visible stocks haven't. So Apple moves up the way it does. It lifts the market with it. So you get the FOMO traders coming and saying, hey, this is going to drive it, as Microsoft did, as Meta did. It's going to lift the market. So you have these isolated instances, and they truly are isolated. I don't care about that where, you know, over the last five years, the, the uh, lowered guidance have been less. Those are manufactured numbers because you had those the reductions in guidance coming into the quarter, not when the quarter reported. The quarter reporting at that period, that's always after the fact. So look, so I maintain that you can't go through a year of rate hikes, 5% increase in your interest rate and not have it break more things. The things we've seen broken so far have been poor risk management. They haven't been impacts of Fed policy. We will see that happen. It's delayed because of resilience. It's delayed because the economy got used to 15 years of free money. That's learned behavior for 15 years. And for a generation investor, that's all they ever knew. I know, they but only it's not just learned. It's, it's legitimate strength as to where the economy was when we started this whole thing. There, and maybe to a degree even more so than people could, could understand at that moment. And that's why we haven't had not just, you know, we've had, yes, some things have broken, but we haven't had this, you know, cascading sort of shattering of all these different things. I just don't think we could ever expect that this would be a normal economic contraction coming out of a pandemic. And I think the result of 
different things breaking within the economy and in the financial markets is going to do a lot of the work for the Federal Reserve. Lending standards are going to tighten. I think that's the headline of this week is that when we get the senior loan officer survey today, we're going to see significant tightening in lending. And that's going to do the Federal Reserve's work. That's going to take you to a place, to Liz's point, where I don't know if you're talking about rate cuts, but you're certainly talking about a Federal Reserve that's just going to have to stop. A Federal Reserve that's not going to be front and center within markets anymore. And, and maybe that's going to allow the opportunity for stocks that have growth at a reasonable price to carry the market forward. Fred's going to be fr- fr- the Fed is going to be front and center no matter what they do, whether they pause or not. Let me ask you this. Is a, is a cut, if the Fed cuts... Mm-hmm. Is that positive for risk assets or no? Because Kalanovic says no, because the, the reason they would be doing is because either the onset of a recession or a significant crisis in financial markets. I, Whereas others say, well, if they cut, that's one of the reasons why I, I think stocks are going to go up in the no, second I, half I, of the I, year. I actually think if we get to a place where they have to cut, no, that's not positive for stocks. I don't think that's positive for risk assets overall. The place I want to be at, and I disagree with you respectfully, is I don't want the Federal Reserve to be front and center anymore. I want them to pause. I want them to step back. I don't want us hanging on every word. I don't want us between meetings having to worry about what they're going to be saying. I, I and know in that you're environment, not disagreeing market, with me at all. The market can rally. I know what you want. I'm, I'm not saying I want them to be. I'm simply saying they are going to be whether you like it or not. Here's the other issue I want to discuss. Because I thought of all the things that Warren Buffett said this weekend out in Omaha at the Berkshire meeting was kind of what he didn't say. Or maybe what he didn't do or hasn't been doing as it relates to the banks as we watch the regionals try and, and bounce again. Um, I think it's pretty telling. Weiss, don't you, that he owns one bank. And frankly, the only reason he owns that is because of the preferred deal. What do you think about Buffett's lack of ownership of the banks? Here's what Buffett said, and we'll we'll react on the other side. We sold banks, bank stocks, uh, in the last, well, we sold them first when the pandemic broke out, and then we sold some more in the last six months. And uh, uh, we don't know where the shareholders of the big banks necessarily, uh, or the regional banks or any are heading. I like Bank of America, I like, I, 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 I like the management, and I propose the deal to them, so I'm, I'm, I stick with it. But do I know how to project out what's going to happen from here? The answer is I don't. Arguably the greatest investor the world has ever known says, I don't want to touch the banks other than the one that I was personally, you know, um, proposing the deal with. Bank of America, obviously, is what he's talking about. What do you take yeah, from that? Well, I'm not surprised he hasn't bought regional banks for, for a few reasons. Number one, they're generally too small. He likes very liquid, very large companies that are too big to fail. So the regional banks, not that Coca-Cola's ever in danger and failing, but if you take a look at what he's owned, he's owned mega caps across industries. He's owned J.P. Morgan. In right. Fact, I was just going to get not so, anymore. Right. J.P. Morgan just hasn't correct enough to be a valuation, you know, buy right now. So it's moved up. It's held up pretty well. So where you would expect to find opportunity, opportunity doesn't exist. Could he add to B of A here? Could he buy City? Well, maybe he's not convinced that City is going to have the turnaround it's going to have. The other thing he said, which is pretty key, is that until there is penalty for poor management, 
he's probably not interested. And right now, there is no penalty. He, he pointed out SVB, talked about First Republic. There's no, puni- there's no, there's no penalty for, for this management team, right? So, yeah, they've got to find new jobs, but maybe that's not enough. The shareholders have suffered the most. So what's, what's telling is he's sitting with, what, $120 billion in cash and that he hasn't been an active buyer. So to him... That you know that the market's not fearful enough right now. I know, but you don't think that his silence on the banks, so to speak, of not buying bank stocks or owning them, is deafening. I think. Like, it, I, words, I think it is. If Buffett, Buffett doesn't want anything to do with the bank stock. Bank I think stocks. it's. I think it's important, as you mentioned, for two reasons. Not that he doesn't think their values yet, but also. He's not afraid of, of casting stones. Charlie Munger, in particular, is not afraid, right? We've seen him get very aggressive and negative commentary. Neither one have said it. And the reason why I believe they haven't said it is because they don't want to create another run in the banks. So two points. Normally, if we're another company that had such poor management that was so broad or another industry, they would come out and talk about it. Here, they're just, they're, it's hands off. You so, own JP Morgan and, and Morgan Stanley? And Bank Do you of think America. it's in, in, you know what what Buffett do. isn't doing is is in some cases more interesting than some of the things he is? I think it's very interesting. I think it's indicative of what investors overall are thinking about when they look at regional banks. I'm not going to speak for Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, but myself personally, if I'm thinking about buying a regional bank, what do I have to have? I have to have confidence that there's coordination with policymakers in terms of supervision. I have to have confidence in the communication that's coming from Treasury, the FDIC, and the Federal Reserve. I have to have confidence that there are actual policy options that are available to these entities. I don't have confidence in any of that regard. That's why I don't think the regional banks right now are going to do anything other than have further consolidation and what that's going to lead to is this roll up into a select few large money center banks who are going to be the winner take all in the United States and I think JP Morgan and Bank of America are part of that. Right. And the other place you have to have confidence is in the book value of the banks because ultimately they trade on book value. And we don't know what book value is right now. It's a moving target if you go back if I'm right about the write down of commercial real estate. Unless you think commercial real estate's not going to be written down further, then you can't buy the banks because you don't know what book value is going to be. Yeah, I mean, you, you go right to the regional banks when I raise the Buffett issue. He doesn't want any, anything to do with any of the banks other than Bank of America. Exactly. The, uh, so he obviously, he and his folks must think that these are just bad stocks. Well, no reason to own them. I, I think what, what, again, I don't want to speak for them, but I think what he's... Their inf- actions are speaking for them. What, I'll give you that, but I think the inference there is that they are vulnerable, they are susceptible to having the type of support that they're going to need to survive and not lead to further consolidation. Again, I'm being very critical of Treasury, FDIC, and the Federal Reserve because I don't see the support being put in place for these regional banks to keep the regional banks in the current structure that they are overall. Otherwise, this consolidation wave is going to unfold. So I I don't own regional banks. I'm not looking to own regional banks. I think most money managers are stepping away from owning regional banks. And if you've actually stepped forward in the last 30 days and tried to be a hero in regional banks, you've pretty much been punished for doing so. But if you extend your comment, though, to the market, what's he bought recently of note, right? Paramount? Right, which he disavowed, so clearly it's one of his people. Oxy. Oxy, exactly. So so you gotta believe that if he believes we're on the verge of an economic recovery, 
and a market recovery, he would have been buying other things, but he hasn't. So apparently, sitting with $120 billion in cash, he believes there's much more vulnerability to the market. But he generally finds value in the most distressed industry. And without question, right now, the regional banks are experiencing no the most no distress. Argue, but the regional banks just aren't big enough. But the other banks, to your point, are big enough. And, you know, he could buy Wells Fargo again. He could add to B of A. He has no problem taking highly concentrated positions, but he hasn't. Liz, what about the I banks I mean, here? I wouldn't... Look, he didn't put a time limit on that statement, and he didn't say anything like that the industry is gone and dead. I wouldn't be surprised if we hear six months from now that Buffett's looking at the banks, right? It's just maybe it's not over yet for him. It's not attractive enough yet for him. And I think that tide could turn. But what about quickly. your what about your view of the banks now? Turn banks. I, I would actually say. I mean, maybe I'm projecting onto him, but I feel the same way. I'm not. I'm not overly optimistic in the stocks at this moment. But I think that if they're the ones, if we go into a contraction, if we go into any type of crisis and the banks are the ones that were the catalyst to get us there, that's usually the group that bounces the strongest on the other side of it. So they could be the ones that, as we talk about this, I don't know how many months from now, they could be the ones that we sit at this desk, look around at each other and say, I'm uncomfortable. They've been really beaten up. But that's the moment that you start looking at them and thinking about them as a buy. I just don't think we're there yet. He did talk about his apple steak, though, his big one. Uh, made it clear why he loves this company. Let's listen. Apple, you know, has a position with consumers where they're paying, you know, maybe they pay 1500 bucks or whatever it may be for a phone, and these same people pay $35,000 for having a second car. And if they had to give up a second car or give up their iPhone, they'd give up their second car. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary... We don't have anything like that that we own 100% of. It just happens to be a better business than any we own. I mean, you get a better endorsement of Apple stock than, no. than that? It's perfectly stated. I mean, that's the fundamental analysis that you need to hear in the capital allocation strategy. It keeps you in the stock. It's been phenomenal. The services revenue grows well, and you've got the emerging markets coming back into play once again, India, China. Uh, so what, what, what he's you know, talking about with this positioning is all of the reasons why Apple is in a leadership position within the equity market, and one of the reasons why Apple will punish you if you sell it, Scott. Well, let me ask you this. Well, you got punished. I know you said that with, a, with a wry too. smile. Yep. Um, next stop for Apple, more likely 200 or more likely 150? Uh, right, smack know, in the middle right now. Yeah, it, it, just one addition to what uh, Warren Buffett said, which is that it's not the consumer paying $1,500, it's the telcos paying it because they're subsidized. I think Apple would be a different story if it was actually consumers paying it. So as long as the phone companies and they show no appetite for cutting back, you can buy a new iPhone for 200 bucks or get it for free. That's the beauty of Apple that they're not dependent on consumer health. Well, so, I mean, you know, in, in, in many respects they are for their vast ar array of products. I mean, they are right. a premium product company, and his point was very clear. It's like, yep. uh, you know, I'm right. not getting rid of my iPhone come hell or high water, you know, unless we got bigger issues to worry if about. I, so if I had to bet on the trading range of Apple, I'd say higher is more likely than lower. All right. Uh, speaking of, our chart of the day. We'll do it straight ahead. An energy company is moving lower despite some more commentary. It's Oxy. I mean, if I say it was Warren Buffett, you know what it is anyway. 
So we, we can reveal it right now. We'll talk about it, though. And energy been down for three straight weeks. So we got to kick that around next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. We will not be making any offer for control of, of Occidental, but we love the shares we have, and we may or may not own more in the future, but, but we certainly have warrants on, on uh, which we got as part of the original deal, on a very substantial amount of stock at around $59 a share, and, and those warrants last a long time, and I'm glad we have them. All right, Warren Buffett, obviously, again, uh, this time on OxyJoe, which you own in the Joe T. Company reporting earnings Thursday uh, after the bell. They are. Um, Pioneer will have a reaction to that. There's a correlation between those two stocks, so you'll see Pioneer move uh, in either direction um, based on what Oxy does. Uh, I believe what we've experienced here in the last 10 days with oil is a pairing back of the extreme overweight allocation that myself and others have had to the energy sector. I am still maintaining overweight positioning to energy. Um, currently, Joti owns 13 energy names. Myself personally, going beyond that, I also own EOG and Valero. Um, taking down the energy exposure, I think, was right from a risk management perspective. From a fundamental perspective, there's still every reason to remain long overweight energy. You have the disincentive to grow the production. You have the OPEC supply challenges that have been highlighted uh, at the beginning of April. And I think it's been reflective of this price range. And I'll credit with Mark Fisher with telling you six weeks ago that oil was going to be in a range between 65 and 85. That's exactly what has happened since then. We're in a range between 65 and 85. And in that environment, being overweight energy, I think, is the right position to have. Your, be your best names right now, you have 13 in the Joe team, and you said you have a 13. couple additionally in, in your personal accounts or what? So I have, in, in Joti, I have two refiners. I have Philips and I have Valero. Personally, I also have Valero. I have EOG personally, so I'm, I'm obviously a big believer of EOG. Um, I, I like the multinationals. I like the ConocoPhillips, Chevron, ExxonMobil. I think for the viewers, that's the right way to take the initial step into energy without having the high beta exposure. If you want to have more beta, you could look towards uh, Diamondback, Fang, which we own. We mm -hmm. also own Hess. Those are other ways to, to kind of capture a little bit more alpha. But for the viewers that are trying to get introduced to energy, I would say with ExxonMobil, Chevron, ConocoPhillips. Why, why are refiners good with oil low? So they're buying. So 
you're buying oil cheaper as a refiner. So your cost, your input yeah, cost I know, but you're, is lower. There's a lag yeah, the also. Output, though. There's a lag. They don't really adjust their prices at the pump, so they've got so they've got that margin when the input goes down and they're buying low, right? There's a well, it's 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 always for a refiner. It's it's all about margins, right? But where so like they're buying low and selling that high when the when oil is is no, but dropping. But the, go ahead. But where it gets uncomfortable for a refiner is if volatility begins to expand significantly. As example, one year ago, you had the price of oil at $120. That's a bad environment for refiners. Right now, if the volatility in oil begins to compress, which it's been suggesting it's going to do, now you've got a little bit of a comfortable range between 65 and 85. From a volatility perspective, that's favorable for refiners overall. Liz, what about energy? I like energy. I, actually, I would answer this with a question. What what makes the thesis break down in this scenario? Is it more supply coming online? Is it a recession? Or is there is it breakdownable? Right? Is there actually that's, something that's that could happen? That's a great question because I think ultimately it, it comes down to demand destruction, and yeah. and that's where you'll see the significant breakdown and the falling apart of these overweight allocations towards energy. The supply side, I don't know exactly where you'll see the new, new supply come into play, certainly given the policies we're seeing in the world and the move towards decarbonization. And, and I'm not offering a view whether you agree with that or not, but it's demand destruction if it's a deep economic contraction, uh, if the you know debt ceiling debate leads us to a place where we don't want to go. That'll be reflected in the spot price of oil. Weiss? The, the interesting thing about commodity stocks and oil in particular is that it's highly driven by uh, speculation. And that overextends the moves bottom and top. Now, you've got an OPEC meeting coming up. Keep in mind, Saudi Arabia, you know, there's not a lot of unrest there. But if there is unrest, because they have to cut back their social spending, which they won't do. But they need an oil price over 75, and that's an old number without inflation, to keep their social programs intact. So I actually think this is a good place to buy oil stocks. You know, as I mentioned, I'd spend some time with Darren Woods. Phenomenal CEO. Exxon would be one I'd buy. Also, to continue on the name-dropping theme, Mike Smith. You're, you're good at that. Keep thank going. You, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you for expect, recognizing nothing less. Thank you for recognizing one of my talents, uh, Scott. <laughs> drop like uh, drop like five Scott. within 30 seconds. One of, of my many talents, right? Upstairs. Mike Smith, who's CEO of Freeport, which is LNG, and you know, I was talking to other people. LNG is the best place to be. There's been no slowdown there. There's only been an acceleration. So I like that quite a bit. Okay. Uh, speaking of energy, let's get to Bob Pisani with today's ET. ETF Edge on this topic, Bob. Great conversation, Scotty. Uh, I'm Bob Pisani again. Today's ETF Edge. Commodities have been on a wild ride in the past few months, particularly oil and natural gas. What's going on? I want to talk with John Love. He's the president and the CEO of United States Commodity Fund. They run the largest oil and natural gas ETFs out there. John, you run U.S. Oil Fund. That's USO. You own oil futures contracts in this. Oil gone from, what, 65 to 80 and back to 70 in less than two months. OPEC's been cutting supplies. There's worries about recession. So it makes sense of, of this for all of us and explain the trading in USO. Sure. Well, uh, nice to be with you, Bob. And it's definitely been a choppy year for crude. Uh, it's been bouncing around, as you said, uh, exactly for, between those two things. Worries about recession, worries about, um, you know, what's the Fed going to do next? Are they going to stick to their convictions? And I think lately, especially the debt ceiling and the banks and, and all of that, on the other side of things, you have OPEC, who have clearly signaled they're going to support the price. 
They cut uh, production in uh, last month. Uh, they're meeting again in June. I think if they see the price uh, going down again, they're going to cut again. They need that oil revenue, as the panel just indicated. And uh, that's different than they've uh, been in recent years where they've been willing to defend their market share. So I think we're going to see uh, you know, OPEC continue to do that. I think we'll probably continue to see a bit of push and pull. But it probably overshot to the downside last week. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of good reasons to look uh, for upside in the future. You know, you also run the natural gas ETF, the biggest one out there. UNG is the symbol there. That's tanked this year. I mean, mid-December, we were at $7 in that gas. Then we went to $2. But it's stabilized in the last month. Uh, have we hit a bottom? What's driving that, that dynamic in natural gas? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there was a big move down. Uh, it, you know, technically, it certainly looks like we've we've hit a floor. Now, whether that holds, uh, again, depends on fundamentals. The easiest way to understand what happened is really look at how much uh, natural gas we have in storage right now versus a year ago. Uh, a year ago, we were 16, uh, 16% below the five-year average. Uh, now we are 20% uh, above the five-year average. So there's just an abundance of natural gas. Also, the story changed. As you know, uh, we had good fundamentals going into 2022, and then Russia invades Ukraine. The price shoots up to $10, uh, the highest level it's been since 2008. And um, when uh, basically we, we were heading towards winter, there were a lot of fears of disaster, uh, you know, winter, uh, people being able to heat their homes in, in, in Europe in winter. That crisis didn't materialize. The Europeans stockpiled more natural gas than they usually do, 5% more than they usually do that time of year. And we ended up having a mild winter, mild winter yeah. in the U.S., mild winter there. Yeah, that's the key right there. So uh, just a quick question and a quick answer I need here. The, the number of shares outstanding in the natural gas ETF, the UNG, went through the roof this year. I mean, why is that? Are, are traders shorting natural gas and then using UNG uh, and then the market makers have to create more shares to accommodate the short sellers? What, is I that what's going on? Yeah, that's that's part of it. I think there's multiple reasons people use it. I mean, we I, I hear from just people all the time that a commodity can't go lower. And frankly, yeah, it can go lower and people need to keep that in mind. But I think a lot of people do see that, you know, we've seen this again and again in 2008 uh, with oil, 2009 with natural gas. When it gets really cheap, um, there is a lot of uh, thought that, wow, it was at $10, it's now down at $2. Um, if things reverse, there's a lot of upside. And yes, as you said, I think there are people, uh, you know, uh, playing the short side. There are people uh, in the options market using it as a hedge. So there's a lot of different reasons people create, but we certainly have seen a lot of yep. uh, good flows this year. Thank you, John. We got much more on the trading in oil and natural gas ETFs coming up on ETF Edge. That's 1.10 p.m. Eastern time. We'll also get an update on using ETFs to trade agricultural commodities. John will be joined by Sal Gilberti. He's the CEO of Tucrium, which runs ETFs for corn, for wheat, sugar, and soybeans. That's ETFedge.cnbc.com, 1.10 p.m. Eastern time. Scott, back to you. All right, good stuff, Bob. Thank you, Bob Pisani. Up next, our call of the day. It's a chemicals company pushing higher today, and that is following an upgrade. Joe owns it. We debate it. We do it next. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. 
Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's our CNBC News update this hour. The White House threatened today to veto a House Republican-sponsored border security bill, saying it doesn't address the root causes of immigration. Among other things, the bill would require the DHS secretary immediately to resume construction of the border wall. The end of the pandemic era, Title 42 in a couple days, is expected to prompt a surge in undocumented migration. China's foreign minister says it is imperative to stabilize U.S.-China relations. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken told The Washington Post last week it's important to reestablish communication with China. Relations between the two countries deteriorated after Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last year. And the Biden administration unveiled a new proposal requiring airlines to compensate travelers for cancellations and delays. The new regulations would also require airlines to cover expenses for meals and hotel rooms for stranded passengers. Airlines currently don't guarantee cash compensation when an airline-related issue causes a significant delay or cancellation. That will be welcome news for any of us who've been stuck in the airport or on the tarmac for hours on end, Scott. All right, Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer, let's get to our call of the day now. It's Albemarle, shares moving higher. After an upgrade at Bank of America, they take it off of a sell. They put it on neutral, stocks up 3%. Joe, you own it in the Joe T. Uh, type target to 200 from 195, so not a huge bump there, but at least they take it off of the uh, you know what list. All right, so there's a lot to talk about here. First of all, let's understand. You got that? I caught it. Thanks. <laughs> let's understand. I, I passed on that real quick. Let's understand. Albemarle, if you're talking about this stock, this is, this is a way to get exposure to lithium without having to buy, let's say, the, the lithium ETF, the lit ETF, which has $3 billion in it. Um, this is how you get your pure play exposure to lithium. So there's a lot of volatility embedded in this stock. We've seen that the last several years. Now, the stock on a valuation basis is cheap. It trades at single digits. And in the most recent earnings report, you saw that Q1 EBITDA had a 40% rise, but yet the guidance for full year 2023, they cut EBITDA by 20% overall. So that led to more selling pressure in the stock. Uh, I think the return of lithium demand as EV sales begin to rise in China, which we witnessed in March, let's understand that China is 59% overall of EVs themselves. As you begin to see that rise in demand, that's going to benefit the stock. So overall, to own this stock, you have to assume a lot of risk in the form of volatility. But there are fundamental conditions that are now coming into play, the reopening of China, the reemergence of EV sales and the demand for lithium once again, that makes this a position that I think you could stay with. So are you at all concerned? I'm not I don't it's not necessarily worried, but concerned that this uh, bounce back from China. Where is it? 
Like it seems like it's not having the kind of impact to this point that people were expecting on a number of different levels, whether it's travel related stuff, as Estee Lauder told you a week or so ago. But others are commenting on the same thing. Yeah. And by the way, the other the part short of this- answer is, yes, I'm, I am very I'm actually very concerned about that. Um, we're not seeing the, we're not seeing the development of a trend, which is what you want to see. There's there seems to be friction in the the path economically that the reopening is taken. Um, and just to, to mention, in fact, for lithium, you know, I cited what unfolded in March where sales rose for EVs in China. Well, in April, lithium pricing was down significantly. Why? We don't have the statistics just yet, but the indication would be that potentially you saw a little bit of contraction in those EV sales. So without question, yes, concerning. All right, up next, Santoli is with us. Mike Santoli is with his Midday Word. We're back right after this. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli is with us with his midday word back from Omaha. Yes. Hope you had a good time. We talked at the top of our show about Buffett and the banks. Yeah. And the fact that he doesn't own anything except for Bank of America. And he made it clear the reason why he owns that one. So I'm going to stick with it. It feels like that silence is deafening on on his lack of presence in that area of the market. Clearly doesn't feel as if it's going to be a place that his capital would be treated all that well in terms of regional banks. Very critical, I think predictably so, of the management of some of the banks that have gotten into trouble. On the other hand, I think you could pull back and say he's implicitly saying this is not to him right now a systemic issue. It's more idiosyncratic. He said we should be used to the idea that banks can fail and not feel as if it has to have some kind of wholesale response. And, of course, talking about how the deposit guarantee should be more or less formalized because they're now implicit. He clearly doesn't think, though, that these are great stocks to be in more broadly, even the big ones, the ones that are, you know, presumed to be. Well, uh, he still still owns some city as well as uh, as Bank of America, but it's just not material to his overall portfolio. American Express, what is it? Is it a bank? He doesn't think of it as a bank. Uh, that's still obviously a huge position, but it was all built so long ago. I think that's one of the things you find when you look at Berkshire's portfolio. It was like this moment in time when you bought, he bought something extremely well, that stock all of a sudden gets revalued massively. That was true for Coca-Cola. It was true for American Express, uh, certainly true for Apple. I mean, when he bought it seven years ago, it was a cheap stock, and now it's not. Uh, but it's still, you know, treating them well. So I think that's uh, one of the interesting things. Also fascinating, Berkshire Hathaway is up 1.2% today, and it's like the biggest upside driver of the, of the financial sector at the moment. So people always come away from that feeling like, okay, the machine is still operational. Yeah. And we feel as if, uh, you know, it, it looks like it could be a decent value. From here. But I agree with you on the banks. Like, there was some suspense heading in as to whether he was going to say, Look, you're leaving money on the table here by not buying up these banks. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. We'll see you at closing bell. Yeah. That's Mike Santoli with his midday word. Uh, coming up next, cyber surge. Those stocks on fire today. We do have ownership on the desk. We're going to break that down next. back. Zscaler, there it is. Look at that. Up 22%. They did pre-announce. Uh, Joe, I know you have your, uh, your eye on this today, so we wanted to point it out to everybody. You own CrowdStrike. 
uh, but this space is ripping off of Zscaler. Well, is cybersecurity, when you're talking about software, that was the one industry with, with overall where you believe that there would be a resiliency in spending. You wouldn't see significant spending cuts. Then what happened was you had the earnings reports for Tenable and Cloudflare, and then the concerns were raised, the alarm bells went off because you began to see the evidence that in fact that thesis was wrong, that there was going to be a cutback in spending on cybersecurity. So now you've introduced with Zscaler and with Fortinet last week, you've kind of offset some of those concerns and you've returned cybersecurity back into uh, this, this thesis that it, there will be the resiliency and the evidence is there to support it. CrowdStrike is the way that I'm playing it. The way that I believe CrowdStrike benefits over some of its peers is just in the capture of market share that I expect they will have in the coming years. Weiss, you used to own Crowd and there was a note not specifically on cyber but software overall late last week from Credit Suisse which upgraded it to uh, a small overweight describing that space as defensive, in, in their words. Even as uh, some of these are obviously elevated valuations relative to the market, yeah. and um, you know, I, I don't know what you think of them at, at this moment, but you did you used to own CrowdStrike. Yeah, I, look, I, I think the tailwinds are phenomenal. And as you go into AI, you increase data, and when you increase data, you need to increase your, your security software. So I like them. Uh, the multiples were coming my way. If you recall, I sold uh, you know, Palo Alto at, at higher levels, missed it going up another 5%. But I'm confident I'll get these at lower prices, but I like them. I think they could be long-term holds. Frankly, it doesn't matter if you buy it now or not because they'll grow into the valuations. But some of these companies still don't make money. And you know, as you start out by saying, the valuations to be just excessive. So I just need to have discipline in what I buy. All right, uh, we got final trades coming up next. Close the bell, 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Adam Parker, Mira Pandit will be with me today along with Nicole Webb. Also have the venture capitalist Rashawn Williams. Find out if this IPO market is finally thawing after a big one last week. Hope you'll join me then. Final trades, Joe T. up first. All right, I'm going to put this on on the close. This is purely a trade, nothing okay. more. Trade. You had earnings last week for AMD. You had bad earnings, and now you have good price action. They reported earnings on May 2nd, May 3rd. Stock opens 85.48, goes down to 81.02. We see it here at 95.50. You buy it here, you put a stop in below 85.48, which was the high that morning post earnings. It was up on that AI-related report about a partnership with Microsoft, or they were making chips for Microsoft. This is purely based on studying the price action. It's a trade. Let's see it's if it works. It's up 15% in a few days, three okay. days, five days. How high is high? For no one knows the answer. Buy high, sell, higher. Someone higher. wrote a book about that. Liz, final. Gold. I've liked this for a while. I know it's at all-time highs. I think it's there for a reason. It goes higher What's on the, the debt ceiling debate. USO. All right, good stuff. I'll see you on Closing Bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.